Colossians chapter 1. I believe this is message number 8 in our Colossians series. We're coming to the end of chapter number 1. So far, Paul has expounded in this chapter on the deity of Christ, the triunity of the Godhead, Christ's place as creator and sustainer of all things, his position as the Father's chosen one. This has been, theologically speaking, a very heavy chapter. Uh, Paul does not write simple letters. Um, I know this is scripture, but this is also a letter that Paul wrote. I was thinking about it. Lord, let my words be as deep and meaningful as Paul's. I, I think about, sometimes I think about the, the letters we write or the words, the conversations we have. They're not very Christ-centered and not very deep in Christ. Paul is just writing to this church of people he's never met before. And he's getting into, I mean, some pretty heavy topics. The deity of Christ, the triunity of the Godhead, Christ's place as the preeminent one in his church, the reconciliation through his blood and his body. Very Christ-centered, Christocentric, very, very deep theology. Just oozed from Paul. I imagine his conversations were not frivolous conversations, but had meaning, right? As I reviewed chapter 1 and what we've talked about so far, my prayer was, Lord, if I could talk this way more often, if my conversations could just ooze Christ like Paul's did, right? Paul has talked about the Father's plan to reconcile us to himself through Christ. This reconciliation is brought to us through the offering of the body of Christ and the shedding of his blood. Again, combating the Gnostic idea that Jesus was only a spirit, appeared to be human. Paul says, no, 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 we're reconciled to God by the body of Jesus Christ. If he didn't have a physical body, our sins are not forgiven, right? The Bible requires a blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. If Christ did not shed blood, physical blood, we are not redeemed. We are not saved, right? We don't believe in a Gnostic Jesus. We don't believe in a spirit in the sky, Jesus. We believe in a man, Jesus, the God-man. That's what we believe. That's what we claim. That's what we hold to. Otherwise, we're not reconciled to God. We're not forgiven. Now, in the end, we'll hear Paul talk about his sufferings. That's Paul's sufferings. And service to God, as well as what God is doing in his plan for the church at Colossae. Let's start at verse 24 of our text. Paul says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ, in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So let's break this down kind of phrase by phrase. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul rejoiced at his sufferings. Can I repeat that for Christians in America in 2022? Paul rejoiced in his sufferings. There's no pity party. There's no self-loathing. Paul rejoiced that he suffered for Christ. We need to let that sink in today. That's a major difference from what we have today, right? He never second-guessed the goodness of God. I mean, what do you hear today from, from people? You know, why, why, why did you leave the church? Why don't you believe me? Well, because God took my mother, or God took my husband, or God, how could he do that to me? We have this self-entitlement mentality that Paul didn't have, right? In fact, when 
somebody was sick and near death that was with Paul and God healed him. Paul didn't feel as God owed him anything, but that he was showing him mercy upon mercy, that he wouldn't have sorrow upon sorrow. He, he didn't see it as an entitled thing. We're so entitled today in Christianity. We think we're free from suffering. He didn't second guess the goodness of God when he suffered for righteousness. Yeah. None of the apostles did, did they? We see in Acts 5.41, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, and let me just say, they were beaten at the council. They weren't just embarrassed or called out or yelled at. They were beaten by the council. Beaten physically, probably with sticks. And they left there and they didn't say, oh, Lord, why didn't you protect us? Oh, Lord, why did this happen? Oh, God must not be real. We're suffering this way. They said, thank you that we are worthy to do what Christ did. Think about that. Today, we want to be counted worthy of honor and recognition. We want trophies and plaques and certificates. We want the head table at, at feasts. We want, to be called, we want to be asked to go preach at the biggest conferences and be the honored speakers on the stage. That's not what the early disciples wanted. They wanted to suffer. And when they did, they were like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. What a blessing that we get to share in the suffering of Christ. That's so different from American Christianity, isn't it? Nonsense. Today, we want to be invited to the biggest conferences or the biggest churches. We even have a green room where the speakers go to be alone with bottled water and bananas. And it's the Tonight Show, right? You know, that's what they have for talk shows, right? For the celebrities and the stars. We're treating our people today like celebrities and movie stars. Come on. They saw suffering as a sign that they were blessed. In his journal, George Mueller shared the same value system. During a time early in his Christian life, when he was ministering among the Jews in street ministry, he wrote this. I preached to them in the places where they gathered and read the scriptures regularly with about 50 Jewish boys. I had the honor of being reproached and ill-treated for the name of Jesus. The Lord gave me grace, however, and I was never kept from the work by any danger or the prospect of suffering. He was physically assaulted and counted it an honor to be ill-treated for the name of Jesus. I think many of us would probably mark that neighborhood and never go back again. I remember when we were in, in Bakersfield a number of years ago, our church was, we had been donated a large number of John and Roman booklets and bilingual booklets. And so our goal was to put them on as many doors in town as we could. Over like four years, I think we put like 70,000 on doors. But there was actually conversations that we had as like team leaders, we had teams that you, kind of different areas of town were given to different men and, and this. But we actually had conversations about certain neighborhoods. 
Should we or shouldn't we go there? It's really dangerous. You know, kind of like, is it worth the risk to give the gospel to somebody? Yes, right? But the conversation, it's the kind of thing where we ended up going there, but should we have even talked about it? Should it have come up? Should we have said, I don't know, it's kind of dangerous. They're kind of, they're kind of bad people. That, that's who the gospel is for, bad people. By the way, the rich bad and the poor bad. This is not a class thing here. But why are we questioning? Should we give the gospel? It's so dangerous. It's been dangerous since Jesus did it. He died doing it, right? What is wrong with us in the American church today? The early Christians didn't even pray for protection. I'm not saying it's wrong to do so, but sometimes I get stirred in my spirit when I'm, we're out with a group, we're going out, and, and, and somebody in the group prays, the Lord, protect us, put a hedge of protection around us, that no harm come to us. I start thinking, why do we want no harm to come to us? The early Christians gloried when harm came to them. I'm not, if you pray that, I'm not condemning you. I'm just saying, why do we do it? Without even thinking about it or questioning it. Lord, keep us safe from harm. So what you're saying is, Lord, don't make us like Jesus. I want to be like Paul, except for the suffering. No, you can't be like Paul, except for the suffering. Paul was who he was because of his suffering for Christ. Acts 4.29, we see, and now, Lord, this is... The disciples of the Lord praying, Behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. So they're being threatened with physical harm or death for preaching the gospel. They come together in a prayer circle, and their prayer is not, O oh Lord, we pray for the hedge of protection. Keep us safe from harm. They say, Lord, give us boldness. We don't care what they do to us. Just make sure, Lord, that when they do it, we're bold in that hour. That we have courage in that hour. That's what we need today, folks. Stop worrying about comfort and safety and worry about our faithfulness to the gospel. That's what the early Christians were worried about. Are we faithfully sharing? You say, well, I, I just I shouldn't go out on Halloween and preach. It's so dangerous. It is. And if you get stabbed... We'll come together and we'll rejoice over it. Amen? That's, that's dark. No, that's, that's Bible right there. If you get arrested, as long as it's for good reasons. Now, if you get arrested because you're a jerk, we're not going to bail you out. But if you got arrested because they hate Jesus and you're preaching Jesus, honestly, we're going to come bail you out. And then we're going to come here and we're going to have a prayer meeting and rejoice. Amen that one of our brothers or sisters was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Stop worrying about comfort. Stop worrying about safety, church. We don't want to be a safe church. We want to be a bold church. And the two don't go together. Churches who want safety won't be bold. But churches who are bold don't care about safety. That means we go to the bad neighborhoods. That means we go to the big festivals. That means we go when people are angry with us. That means we go to, to Planned Parenthood rallies where 2,000 people gather around you and the police have to escort you out to keep you safe. That's why we do that kind of stuff. You know why? Because the gospel must go out, and if we suffer, we are counted worthy to suffer. It's a glorious thing. Nobody, I promise you, nobody is in heaven today who suffered physically for sharing the gospel, and they're going, man, I wish I hadn't done that. What a mistake. 
There isn't a martyr in heaven who looks back in their life and goes, man, I should have done that differently. Nobody. But I promise you right now, there are millions upon millions of people in heaven who are saved, but who played it safe, who risked nothing for the gospel, and who are full of regret today, who are singing that old hymn, I wish I had given him more. I don't know if Paul's saying that or not. I don't think so. He poured out his life for the gospel. Yeah. I'm not telling you to go out and get beat up, church, but I'm saying we need to be bold while sharing the gospel. Yeah. We need to realize that we're going to share the gospel with some pretty rough people for whom Christ died. That's our job. The Great Commission was not go you there for and teach the nice people. It's to teach all nations. That might involve a Halloween festival in Hollywood. That might involve the jungles of South America or Africa or Asia. That might involve going to a war-torn country. That might involve giving your life for Christ. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? When I came to the... Uh, prison in Lancaster when I first started ministering there. The church there was very bold. They, they had actual like outreach times. Like you say, you know, like us, we, we gather for outreach, we go to a park or a, or a abortion clinic or door to door. I think, what can prisoners do for outreach? They can't, you know, go cell to cell and knock on doors. But they'd gather, they'd pray, and they'd split up in teams in the yard to go minister the gospel to people. And their prayer was never, Lord, protect us. It was, Lord, make us bold. One guy, I, didn't, I never met him. He, he wasn't there when I got there. But one guy, he was newly saved. He was really excited about the gospel. And the Lord had put it on his heart to witness to this one man. And he went. And he got beaten up. Went back. And he got beaten up again. Went back a third time. And he got stabbed. He got out of the hospital. Went back a fourth time. And got killed. He got killed. When I talked to the church there about the incident, the testimony from everybody was, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it to give the gospel. The Lord had put it on his heart. The man in question, about a year later, got saved. Was it worth it? I'm pretty sure the man, looking back from heaven, would say, yes, it was worth it. But stop worrying about comfort. Let's be bold for the gospel of Christ. It's not about us. It's about Christ. Turn to John chapter 15, if you would. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. I'm going to continue this thought of suffering for a minute. John 15, verse 18, Jesus told us that suffering would come. Verse 18, if the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours as well. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. The world hates you, Christian, it hated Christ first. In fact, the reason it hates us is because it hates Christ. The world has nothing against us personally. I want you to understand that. It's not personal. It's not. Because if you water down and compromise your Christianity, they'll, they'll accept you back. You preach a false gospel, they'll, they'll accept you back. You don't push Jesus on them, they'll accept you back. It's not us they hate. It's the person of Christ that they hate. Because they know in their heart that he is God. And that he will judge them for their sins. And they love their sins. Therefore, they hate the God who would judge them for their sins. Thus, they hate the person who preaches the God that would judge them for their sins. You take that away, they're okay with you. They're okay with you. Uh, Brother Tatsu, I was, I was walked down a couple weeks ago and watched him preach. Terrible. No, I'm just kidding. He's kidding. <laughs> he was preaching the gospel boldly. And people didn't like it. And right across from him, there was a church booth set up at the farmer's market. And everyone stopped by there. Everyone loved them. You know what they weren't doing, though? They weren't sharing the gospel of Christ. They're inviting people to a trick-or-treat event to give out candy. The world loves that, by the way. You want, you want to give them candy? The world loves that. You want them to repent of their sins? They're going to hate you. Suffering will come if you carry the name of Christ because Christ suffered. We cannot follow the crucified Savior without a cross. We cannot live in luxury while following the sorrowing Savior. We can't. If we're going to share in Christ, we're going to share in Christ's sufferings. We need to understand that. Paul expressed this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, there's exceptions. That's a general rule. I mean, there are people who... You know, during the heyday of American morality, went to church. It was, it was the end thing back in the 1940s, 50s to be a Christian. It was culturally acceptable. So maybe all of them didn't suffer on a regular basis. But down through history, that's not the norm. That's, that's, that's the exception to the rule, right? America, for most of its, its existence, has been the, acceptance to the except, exception to the rule. The rule down through history has been suffering. Suffering on the part of those who name the name of Christ. God has determined that those who live godly, especially in perilous times, will suffer persecution. So if we're not being persecuted, what are we not doing? We're not living godly in Christ Jesus. That's, that's a clear sign. If the world loves you, you're of its own. If the world, I'm okay that the world doesn't love our church. There's a lot of churches the world loves because they're like them. Right? That's not what we don't want. We don't aim to be like them. We aim to be like Christ, and they hate Christ. Understand that. Suffering and persecution should not be foreign to the Christian. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And verse 19. 
2.19. For this is thankworthy of a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. It's thankworthy if a man, for conscience towards God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. It's thankworthy. It's like what the disciples said, right? We thank you, Lord, that we were counted worthy to suffer for your name. It's thankworthy. It's praiseworthy. When we suffer for Christ, having done nothing wrong, we should praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm sharing in your sufferings. Thank you, Lord. I'm being persecuted for your name's sake. Paul wrote much of the New Testament from prison. Think about that. He wasn't writing from a comfortable desk in a cushy office somewhere. He was in prison, and not like our prisons. I mean, prison, prison. Cellar, chained-to-the-wall type prison. He wasn't there for his own crimes. He hadn't sinned. He was there because he was a minister of Christ, because he preached the gospel in hard places. He was suffering for them, he says, in our passage in verse Verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, for you. He said, my suffering is for you. This is because they were saved because of missionary work that he had done. He had reached uh, uh, was it Epaphras or Epaphroditus with the gospel, who had then gone to Colossae and started the Colossian church. So their salvation was a result of Paul's suffering. Paul's preaching the gospel and suffering for the gospel got them to the point of salvation. So he says, my suffering is for you. It's for all who received the gospel, in other words. They benefited from his work, and therefore all he was going through was for the souls like them that would be saved. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're still in verse 24. So he rejoices in his sufferings for them. His suffering is for their benefit. Okay. By the way, when you're persecuted for Christ, remember this. Your suffering is for the one that's persecuting you. It's for them. To give them the gospel. Just like Jesus, when he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was, he was suffering. Some of those people got saved who crucified Jesus. Some of them came to Christ later on, especially at Pentecost. Right? They were benefiting spiritually from the sin they were committing. He was suffering in front of them for them in that moment. Verse 24, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh. So he's filling up what is behind or missing of the afflictions of Christ. That's, that's kind of a puzzling statement, right? What does this mean? What is missing from the sufferings of Christ? And then we can get all kinds of crazy doctrines from there and get into purgatory and all this kind of That's not what the Bible goes, okay? What's missing here is the in-person presentation of the sufferings of Christ. Okay? Uh, the sufferings of Christ could not be seen by the nations visibly because it happened at a point in history. It happened in a moment in time. So the people that Paul is preaching to, they could not see the sufferings of Christ. That was missing. 
Christ was glorified and ascended to heaven, so only those present at the time saw with their eyes the demonstration of the love of God in suffering on their behalf. Paul's sufferings were a visible reenactment of the sufferings of Christ on the cross being played out for people to see. The same thing applies to you and me. When we suffer for Christ, we are visibly reenacting for people the visible evidence of the love of God towards sinners. Because we're doing it for their sake, for the gospel's sake. Paul uses the same term elsewhere. Turn over quickly to Philippians chapter 2. Let's look at it there. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 25 through 27. Paul says, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants, for he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that he had heard that he because you had heard that he had been sick, for indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Epaphroditus is bringing a gift to Paul on behalf of the church, and he gets sick to the point of death, but God spares his life. Look at verse 30. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service towards me. So they had sent a gift to Paul on behalf of the entire church. One thing was missing. One thing was lacking. They could not all be there in person to give it to Paul. Right? Paul's not accusing them of saying, well, your gift wasn't good enough. It's, there was something lacking in your gift. That's not what he was saying. Paul is saying that Epaphroditus, bringing the gift to Paul, ministering it to Paul in person, was filling up what was missing in their offering. That is, that they could not all be there to do it. So Christ is glorified in heaven and cannot be here personally to physically suffer, to demonstrate his love for sinners. So we, as his body, we fill up what he can't do. In other words, we suffer to visibly show the love of God towards sinners. It's a visible reenactment of what Christ was doing on the cross. We are his body. His body is still suffering today to bring the gospel to sinners, to bring salvation to sinners. It's done through us, the body of Christ. So when we hope for no persecution or when we hope for uh, relief from suffering, what we're doing is we're not demonstrating the love of God towards sinners. Because Christ suffered in the flesh. We who are delivering the message are filling up or we are demonstrating in our suffering, in our flesh, the love of Christ for sinners. That's what Paul's talking about here. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. So we suffer because we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. That is, we are demonstrating in front of people the love of God towards sinners. Back to verse 24. For his body's sake, which is the church. The church is the body of Christ. We have close communion with Christ. Our sufferings are his sufferings, right? Because we're his body. If one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. We're all connected. In the same way that you and I, right? So we suffer. We know that part. If one part of the body suffers, all suffer. Reuben is stricken with cancer. We all suffer. Tetsuo gets murdered on the streets. We all suffer. Right? If there's a burden to one, there's a burden to all. Because we're joined together. We're, we're, we're fit together. We're knit together as a body. In the same way, we're united to Christ. So our sufferings are his sufferings. Understand that. He suffers today, though he's in heaven, 
through the sufferings of his church. He so closely identifies with us. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul could have said, I've never even met you before. I'm persecuting these people over here. And he says, yeah, that's what he's talking about. They're my body. They're my people. By persecuting them, you're persecuting me. Understand that. He's not far removed from our sufferings. He is there with us in our sufferings. By the way, that makes suffering so much more glorious, doesn't it? Christ is there with us. It doesn't matter what that suffering is. Christ is there. He knows our pain, whether physical, emotional. He knows loneliness. Are you lonely today? Christ is suffering with you. He knows abandonment. You've been abandoned by somebody? Christ is suffering with you. Lost a loved one? So did Christ. I think when John the Baptist died, he went out by himself. He's lost good friends. He knows, he knows the pain of loss. Are you suffering physical pain today? So did Christ. He's with you in, in your suffering. He identifies with us. Are you being persecuted for Christ today? He identifies with that. Even to the point of death, he knows what we're going through. His sufferings are our sufferings. That's why we have the hour and a half prayer meeting. You know why? Because we share in this body together. Our sufferings are his. Let's take it to him. He can identify. You know, there are things that happened to me that nobody in this room can identify with. You, you haven't experienced it. So you can't come alongside me and say, brother, I know how you feel. I know, I know how you're feeling. You don't know how I'm feeling. And there's things that you go through that I can't come alongside you and say, I know what you're going through. Because I don't. But I'm pretty sure whatever it is, Christ can come alongside us and say, I know exactly how you feel. I know exactly how you feel. I too have been lonely, abandoned, persecuted, lost loved ones. I too have suffered physical pain. Nothing that you or I can experience, Christian. Christ hasn't gone there first. Even death itself. He went before us. Nothing. There is not a thing that happens to us that he can't touch and sympathize with. Go to him. Are you scared about persecution? I'm not going to lie from the pulpit. I am. I am. I don't know what's going to happen in that day when that comes. I think like that anecdote with Corrie ten Boom with her dad when she talked about suffering for Jesus and he gave the analogy of the train ticket, right? Do I give the train ticket to Amsterdam but a week before we go? Five days before we go? No, I give it to you when it's time to get on the train. And so Christ doesn't give us the strength to suffer when we don't need it. But in the moment we need it, that strength's going to come. I'm terrified of the days that we live in. I am. Suffering will come. I believe that in my lifetime, I will be arrested at least once for the gospel of Christ. I just believe that. I will be physically assaulted at some point for the gospel of Christ. And in that moment, there is people who cannot identify with me, but Christ is not one of them. He's been there. He's been through it. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, 
but was at all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. By the way, even don't be hard on yourself if you're tempted to avoid suffering. If you're tempted to, what's the word I'm looking for? If you've got the temptation that you say, I don't want to suffer. Christ has been there too. When he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup away from me. Let this cup pass from me. Now that was the divine nature of Jesus speaking. I, don't, I mean the human nature. I don't, I don't believe the divine nature of Jesus ever once shrunk back from the cross. But he was still a man. And his human nature said, if, if there is another way to do this, but then what did he ultimately come to? What was his ultimate conclusion? Not my will. Your will be done. Do you feel fear of persecution? Go to Jesus. You have trouble? I don't know if I can drink of that cup, Brother Tatsuo. Great, go to Jesus. He'll teach you to say, not my will, but your will be done. And by the way, angels came and ministered to him. Then he went back and prayed the second time. And he said, this cup not passed from me, except I drink it, your will be done. The strengthening was the difference. That was the difference. In his human nature, Christ had, shall I say, the heebie-jeebies about death. And he went to God the Father with it. And what did the Father do? He sent angels to minister, to strengthen him in that moment of trial. And what did he come out with saying? A bold, if I have to drink it, I have to drink it, your will be done. If you're fearful today of what may come in the future, go to God. Go to God. He will send people to minister to you. He will send angels to minister. He will send his Holy Spirit to minister to you. And you'll come out saying, whatever your will is, God, I submit to that. Let's go to verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. So let's bring this one again, part B, piece by piece. Whereof I am made a minister. Once again, we, as we saw in verse 8, the term doesn't necessarily mean a pastor, but rather a servant of the church. Uh, not to any one church in particular, but to the church as a whole. Paul was a servant to preach the gospel, correct errors, and build up the saints to the whole church. He was an apostle. He was in prison, suffering for his work on behalf of the church, as their servant, he represented them in prison as much as he represented Christ in his suffering. Understand that. Remember, if one part of the body suffers, all are affected. We are to be so connected that the burdens of one member are shared by all. Galatians 6.2, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to bear one another's burdens. We should be praying for one another, taking not only the burdens of our own hearts to the Lord, but the burdens of our brothers and sisters as well. Your concerns are my concerns. My concerns are your concerns. That's why we have a prayer list. So we can compile a list of all of our burdens on our hearts. And we can all take it before the Lord. I have burdens that you don't share. You have burdens that, I, that may not be my burdens. I don't, I, 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 I've never uh, met um, Art's parents. I've never met Kim's dad, but they're both burdened for their salvation. So it's my responsibility as a child of God, as a member of the church, to bear that burden as well. Their burden becomes my burden, right? 
there's something you're concerned about, same rule. My burdens are your burdens. I feel so burdened about a work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And a lot of you have taken that upon yourself, and you bear that burden too. You're crying out for the same thing that my heart cries out for. Because what's my burden is your burden. Jackie wants her kids saved. That's a burden on her heart. That means that burden is to be carried by me and Tatsuo and Leo and Gloria and Ruben. Because we're a body. We're connected to one another. If one of us suffers, we all suffer. We all suffered when Jackie was out. We prayed, we cried, we travailed. We were not complete while she was out sick. Because we're a body. We're one. Though we're separate, we are one. And we never become a church. We look around and go, where's Jason? Oh, he's sick. Oh, okay. That should be a, is he okay? Let's pray for him. What's wrong? Can we get him something? We should bear one another's burdens. In other words, nothing is left to an individual member. We all suffer. We all travail. We all share the burden. We all share the work of the ministry. He says, according to, so he's wherever I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God. He says that he was made a minister or servant according to the dispensation or stewardship of God. That's what the word means. It means stewardship of God. He was given this position as servant to the church as a steward of God. A steward was somebody given responsibilities for the affairs of another. Right? We see that with, uh, let me see, we see that with uh, Joseph. He was a steward over Potiphar's house. He was given Potiphar's affairs to, to manage. Adam and Eve were stewards in the Garden of Eden, right? They were to manage the affairs of the garden. So Paul is made a minister, a, a, a steward of the gospel to the Gentiles. He is to manage the gospel going out to the Gentile world, to bring them to Christ, to establish churches. That's what he's talking about here. Which is given to me for you. So God had put Paul over the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, and this made him a servant to all the churches as well, to fulfill the word of God, to fulfill the word of God, that the gospel go to the Gentiles to bring all nations into the family of God. So Paul says, I've been made a steward of God. That's why I'm suffering. I've been made a steward of God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring them into the family of God. You and I, there's a, there's a very easy application here. You and I have been made stewards of the gospel of Christ and the Great Commission to bring all nations into the family of God, to preach the gospel to every creature. That will involve suffering. Let me just warn you ahead of time. It will involve suffering. Verse 26. Even the mystery which, which has been hidden, hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. The mystery that the Gentiles would be saved as well, was not a secret necessarily. It's all over the Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Isaiah 49, 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. It was never a secret that God intended to include the Gentiles. But it was a mystery. And Paul is now the steward of that mystery, bringing the Gentiles into the family of God. Simeon understood this. 
in Luke 2.29, when he prayed over the Christ child, he said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. There was understanding that God was intending to bring all nations into the kingdom of God, right? But how this would, take, how this would be done was a mystery. Paul explains this in Ephesians 3.6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. God's plan the whole time was for the gospel to make Gentiles fellow heirs, receivers of the covenants of Abraham, part of the family of God through the gospel of Christ. Verse 28. Wait, did we do 27? I got, I, got, I got all behind you. Let's do verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope. This is the best part of the message. How can I miss that verse? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is not just the inclusion of the Gentiles in the family of God. Right? But as it says here, Christ in you. That Christ would actually dwell in and among his people. That's the mystery. It was not just that the Gentiles were invited into the, into the kingdom of God, but that God would dwell in us, among us. That's been the plan the whole time. What did God want in the Garden of Eden? To dwell with his people. To dwell with Adam and Eve, to walk with them. They put him out, didn't they? Then he called, called Israel together. What'd they say? We want a king over us. We don't, we don't want the Lord over us. So he dwelled behind the curtain, didn't he? Then Christ comes. And what do we hear? We don't have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. His blood be on us and on our children. And so now the gospel goes out. And God is doing what he intended to do from the very beginning of creation. That is to dwell in and among his people. Church, we're not just invited into the family of God. He dwells in us. He's in our midst this morning, beholding our hearts and our worship. We did this morning for an hour and a half what nobody in human history was ever able to do. What do we do? Father in heaven, here's my request. Father in heaven, here's my request. Nobody has ever been able to approach the Father. They didn't even know the Father in the Old Testament. Jesus came to, to make him known. We have the right to walk directly into the Father's throne and make requests. You know why? Because he dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. He dwells among us. We're not just invited guests. He is indwelling us, changing us. Christ doesn't say, or God doesn't say, become more like Jesus and then sit back and wait for us to improve ourselves to be more like Jesus. He comes inside and he begins to remake us. He is conforming us to the image of his son. I'm not conforming me. You're not conforming you. If we're born again, Christ is doing that work in us. 
The mystery of God was not just that the Gentiles would come in. Paul is saying, I'm not suffering just to bring other ethnic groups into the, into the kingdom of God. I'm suffering to bring God into you, that he would dwell in you and among you and change you into his people. Verse 28, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to this working, to his working, which worketh mightily in Working in me mightily. In, the, in fulfillment of the mystery, we preach Christ. That's what we preach. Not philosophy. Not science. Not logic. We preach Christ. We preach a Savior. We preach Christ in us. We teach men in righteousness. We warn them of judgment to come in order to present them perfect or blameless in Christ on the day of judgment. That's why we're called to suffer, church, so we can present men blameless before God, that they could come in and be fellow heirs, that God could dwell in them and among them as well as he does us. Christ himself has already perfected us. We stand complete in Christ, lacking nothing. We must learn to live in that finished work. That's what sanctification is. You know, sanctification is not you and I becoming more holy, like by effort. We've been declared holy by God. Sanctification is just you and I learning to walk in what God has already declared us to be. And we learn that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in us and among us, teaching us. Why do we suffer? We suffer so that others could dwell with God, that God would dwell in them, that they too would have the right to the Father's throne. Let me finish by making a quick application. As part of the body of Christ, we suffer with other members of the body of Christ. Understand that. When a missionary is killed in Tanzania, we should feel the pain here. We should weep here. When someone else is sick, when, they loved, when a loved one to be saved, those burdens become our burdens. You guys ever grow up with siblings like I did? I had a sister. We had a famous saying, it's not my problem. <laughs> I need that, not my problem. Can I use the bathroom? I'm running late. Not my problem. If you're in the family of God, it is your problem. It is my problem. If one suffers, all suffer. And by the way, if we suffer, he suffers along with us. He identifies with our suffering. Because they don't hate us. They hate him in the first place. We suffer as Christians in order to represent the sufferings of Christ to the lost. You and I, when we suffer, we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. Not because his suffering wasn't sufficient. To pay. It will pay for the sins of each and every person it's intended to pay for. But he cannot offer it himself physically here today. So we offer it in his stead. Right? That's what First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. We're in Christ's stead, pleading, be reconciled to God. He can't physically be here because he's physically in heaven. So we stand there as his representatives, pleading with people to come to the cross to be saved in his place, be reconciled to God. When we suffer, we are suffering just as Christ did on the cross, but not for their sins, 
brother, we're demonstrating to them the love of God towards sinners. And that even suffering doesn't stop the love of God towards sinners. We are stewards of the mystery of Christ in the gospel. Understand that, church. We are stewards of the mystery of Christ in the gospel. What is the mystery of Christ in the gospel? Christ in us, the hope of glory. That Christ will indwell and change a person. We're stewards of that. Don't mishandle that, church. A lot of churches today mishandling the gospel. And people are lost because of it. People think they're saved, but they're not saved because of it. We are stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be good stewards of it. Let's be faithful. Listen, you will never be judged. I promise you. Hold me accountable one day in heaven. You will never stand before God and be held accountable for how many souls were saved. But you and I will be accountable for the gospel that we preached. Be a good steward of the gospel. That might involve suffering. That might involve pain. That might involve tears. That might involve going to jail. Be a good steward. We must be about the business of preaching and teaching Christ to others, warning them and helping them to grow in their position in Christ. That means other Christians. A worldly Christian is our problem too. It's our job to help one another to grow in Christ. To learn what is an immature Christian? Somebody who has been saved but has not learned to walk in that new life. It's our job to teach one another, to encourage one another. You see somebody in the Christian life who's suffering, who's I mean not suffering, but who's falling into sin or struggling in the Christian life. We don't have the right to say, not my problem. It is your problem. It's my problem. As stewards of the grace of God, we are to help one another along. As much as we're to give the gospel to the lost, we have responsibility in here to one another. To help and encourage and grow one another. In that respect, be good stewards. Our stewardship of the gospel doesn't end when the person gets saved. It continues right on down through life to help grow one another, to encourage one another, to urge one another to to, to greater and greater holiness. Be good stewards. Suffer well. Suffer well, church. Suffering's coming. There's going to be a price to pay for being a bold Christian. Be bold anyways. Let's pray that God makes us bold people, a bold church. And if suffering comes, let's rejoice in it. Let's not shy away from it. Let's not ask for that hedge of protection. I don't want the hedge of protection. You know the hedge of protection is keeping us from? Sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The early apostles were like, we get counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Who would, who would, who would not want that, Right? In modern Christianity, in our, our modern m- mindset, you know, we, we, we want honor, we want, we want respect. So, you know, if Brother Tatsuo, if his heart's desire was to be called to preach at the biggest church conference in America, he wouldn't come to me and be like, Brother, keep my phone. I don't want to get that phone call. Right? He'd be like, no, keep the ringer up. Let me have it with me all the time in case I get that phone call. I want to be counted worthy for honor. Just kidding, brother. When we pray that we don't suffer, what we're saying is, God, don't, don't give me the honor of 
Listen, as I said before, nobody in heaven, nobody, not one, regrets suffering for Christ. You and I won't either. When suffering comes, let's be good stewards of the mystery of the grace of God through the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, it's, I guess it seems kind of grim talking about suffering, but that's what Paul was talking about. We've been so taught in America today that suffering is bad. We should seek our comfort, honor, respect. But Lord, I want to be counted worthy to suffer shame for your name. I remember we were at a Planned Parenthood rally a few months ago. And 2,000 people gathered around us. And for 30 minutes straight, they chanted, shame, shame, shame. They were shaming us because we believe that babies have dignity and deserve life. Thank you that we were counted worthy to be shamed for such a great truth. I pray for our church, Lord. We're, a, we're, a, we're a, an active church. We're a gospel-sharing church. Suffering is going to come. In that moment, Lord, make our people strong. Make us bold. Make us good stewards of the gospel of Christ. We don't go seeking violence. We don't go seeking arrest. We don't go seeking to make a spectacle of ourselves. But when that time comes, go with us. Walk beside us. Strengthen us. We're only walking where you've been before. May we count it a privilege to walk in your steps. Here and two were we called because Christ suffered for us. What's that call? To suffer for him. <clears throat> Give us boldness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.